So today, our talk and our discussion, uh, we're going to read the second essay in our book, and it's very short, and it's uh, just a couple pages, uh, um, here about where first century people, that first century people were primitive, right? The objection that uh, first century people, they needed religion because they weren't smart enough or they didn't have science, right? Science. Today's essay is by our good friend, Craig Parton, who came here several years ago. Does anybody remember what year that was? Yeah, it wasn't that long. I, I think, I want to say it was 2017 or 2018, somewhere around there. Maybe, maybe uh, I don't know. Some, yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, he's got a, a great book. This book was, I, I, you know, these are one of the books that I give to people. It is a fantastic book. It's monumental in its information that it presents. Craig Parton is a lawyer, and this book, Religion on Trial, uh, was just, it's, I can't recommend it highly enough, where one of the sections, really his, his religion on trial means we're going to look at religion with the same eyes that we evaluate all other texts. So he's, if we evaluate the Bible, how we evaluate science books and all these other books, the Bible surpasses all works of literature by far. One of the graphs here, he says, you know, there are, to, to the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible, its reliability, you know, would have to be like, how soon was the Bible written after the events took place? Because if an event takes place and you don't write about it till a thousand years later, I mean, that, that's kind of a weakness. Also, the earliest copy that we find of the literature, the time span, right, that, that it, it happened, and then how many copies of said work do we find? How many witnesses of a piece of literature do we, do we find? Do we only find this literature in a very small area? Is it enclosed in it just right here? Or have there been many copies made of it that go out because people have trusted its truthfulness? And so this graph he has on page 47, he talks about some secular works that, that we trust and believe in. He says, uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, right? A history book that we there. It was written in 50 BC, right? The earliest copy of it that we have was written in 900 AD. That covers a thousand years. We have 10 copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Would anybody say that we can't trust what Caesar has written? We can't trust Caesar's Gaelic Wars? No, that's a, that's a basis for a lot of classic history that we have, uh, secular and Christian. Uh, we have Thucydides, right, who wrote histories. Uh, his was 480 BC is when it was written. Earliest copy we have is 900 AD. We only have eight copies of that. We have Plato, right? The guy that you all loved reading in high school, right? Plato and his Tetralogias, his four words, his four works. That was 400 years before Christ. The earliest copy of Plato we have is from 900 AD. We only have seven copies of Plato's works. So everybody would receive those and, and believe them. How about the Iliad? How many of y'all, do any of y'all remember when Homer and the Iliad, right? When, when that was written? Yeah, 850 BC, 600, 800 BC. What's the earliest copy of 
Homer. Uh, 400 BC. So it's very, pretty good, pretty impressive, even before Christ. How many copies of the Iliad do we have? And we make our kids read this in schools, right? Or we used to, anyway. Well, 643, right? Not too many. Now listen to the stats for the Bible, right? The New Testament. Particular Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written the latest 90 AD. The earliest copy we have, and we're getting even earlier, right here when this book was written, 200 AD. So only 130 years after the events happened do we have the earliest copies. How many copies of the Gospels do we have? In excess of 15,000. So by all, by all standards of evaluating literature, and that we use and believe as truthful accounts of what took place in history, the Bible far surpasses them all. This little book that taught me that point gave me incredible courage and reminded me that we Christians, we have a lot to stand on. First century people were not stupid. Uh, if, if we evaluate, if we think first century people were stupid and that religion is just a product of stupidity, then we have to look at all all sources of historical knowledge in that way, and we know nothing. And then what makes us superior to them? Right. Were you raising your hands? Yes. A verdict that demands evidence? No, it's evidence almost. Evidence that demands a verdict. Okay. <laughs> he, does the, he does the same kind of thing that Craig Martin does. I went backwards. He examines the scriptures and so forth from yeah. a legal standpoint. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, so we're on page 9 then in our objections over rule 2 here. And we're just going to read through. First century people were primitive. That's the objection to believing in Christianity. Bullet point 1. The belief that first century people were primitive is illogical, untrue, and unhistorical. The claim that the new things, that new things are necessarily better, fails to judge things on their own merits. Human nature and society have not changed significantly over time, and most great human ideas were already circulating in the first century. If Christian ideas were primitive, they would not have been the force behind revolutionary developments in healthcare, education, science, and the arts. A current objection to the Christian position is that primitive first century people recorded primitive events and concocted an equally primitive morality. Primitive people sacrificed their children to appease bloodthirsty imagined gods. They treated diseases with toxic remedies and vacuous incantations. <coughs> people had limited means to travel, which created almost impermeable geographic zones of ignorance and limited contact. They lacked the cross-pollinating of ideas so crucial for progress and advance of science. They did not have the scientific answers or explanations we moderns have. Direct application of this to Christianity is obvious. Backwards, first century uneducated fishermen, aka the apostles, gave birth to backwards ideas. They described events unusual to them in necessarily miraculous terms. Thus, Jesus, quote unquote, rose from the dead. People had no other way to make sense of the event by explanations like mass hallucinations or principles of magic known now. David Copperfield can make the Statue of Liberty disappear, so why not make a single man appear to have alive, be alive again? 
This argument is logically fallacious, fallacious, factually vacuous, and historically unstoppable. These lawyers and their big words, I tell you. The argument is logically fallacious. The idea that first century people were primitive is known as the chronological fallacy in logic. It is also known in layman's terms as the myth of progress or chronological snobbery. It is the belief that intellectually, humanity languished for countless generations in the most childish errors on all sorts of crucial subjects, and it was redeemed by some simple scientific dictum of the last century, from History of Words by Owen Barfield. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis realized he was guilty of it. Why? Damn it, it's medieval, I exclaimed, for I still had all the chronological snobbery of my period and used the names of earlier periods as terms of abuse. This idea that new is necessarily better is understandable in our technologically changing world. The most recent smartphone or digital device is indeed more advanced than the last version. Some things are better today than they were 2,000 years ago. Take dentistry or anesthesia or plumbing. But apply those same standards or archi to architecture. Where is the modern equivalent of the Parthenon in Athens or the Colosseum in Rome? Art. Is there a Rembrandt, Titian, Titian, Titian or Vermeer to be found? And music. The Dead Kennedys, my personal favorite, Jello Biafra versus Palestrina, Polyphony, or Bach's Mass in B minor. New is not necessarily better, nor, to the contrary, is old necessarily better than the new. We've always done it this way, so it must be the right way. Each claim must be checked out and verified on its own merits. I'm sorry I jumped too quick. Does anybody need a book? I got more copies. Very good. Glad I said that. Glad I looked up. Okay. And if you have one and you just forgot it, you can just leave your copy on the table. If you want to follow along, you can just you can take it home or leave it. We good? Everybody good? Done. Okay. I should make you do the walk of shame. Anna, I think I've given you five of those books. <laughs> no, 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 no shame at all. Uh, if you forgot it, like I said, just leave leave the copy today there at your spot, and somebody will pick it up. Uh, or if you want to take it home, go ahead. They're all paid for. Okay. The, the argument is factually vacuous against, against, against Christianity. First century people were like us in many ways, intellectually and psychologically as well as emotionally. The first century New Testament has people doing the same activities we do today, eating, drinking, sleeping, getting married, singing, committing crimes, joking, weeping, having babies, engaging in arguments and riots, and dying and being buried. Additionally, many central ideas and moving intellectual forces of our day were already on the scene by the end of the first century. Standard listings of the most influential people who ever lived include many from the first century or earlier, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Confucius, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, and the Apostle Paul. The foundations of mathematics, philosophy, and literature were already present in the golden age of 5th fifth to 4th century BC Greece. The world's major religions, save for Islam, were already thriving. By the first century, the world had known Plato, Aristotle, and, as my favorite philosophers say, Bill and Ted, Socrates. <laughs> Professional medicine had begun, Hippocrates. Literature and lyric poetry had already produced groundbreaking words. 
Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, Ovid's Metamorphosis, Horace's Odes. The discipline of history had come forth in Thucydides and Plutarch. Dramatic theater was being explored. See the plays of Sophocles and Aeschylus, the brilliant comedies of Aristophanes. The foundations of modern botany were laid. Thephrastus. Thephrastus, sorry. Have to get these right. The Middle East of the first century was at the confluence of both Latin and Greek civilizations. As a citizen of the Roman Empire and a user of its famed road system, the Apostle Paul was in regular contact with foreign ideas. Note for his example his confrontation with Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Paul's extensive missionary journeys took him to numerous Greek and Latin centers. Multilingual in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, the main writer of the New Testament epistles was a broadly educated intellectual force and an astute reader of the philosophical ideas of his day. In short, first century Palestinian man was hardly a Neanderthal. Maybe not having a mobile device, Netflix, and YouTube meant he was less distracted from thinking deeply and profoundly. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, one of my favorite authors, y'all have to forgive me because my brain is a week behind. <laughs> one of my favorite authors, Anthony Esselin, is a Roman Catholic writer and he reflects on a lot of these things and he really talks about that being busy and being so preoccupied with things is a tool of the devil because it keeps us from times of leisure. And times of leisure of just contemplating creation and what God gives us. And we're always busy doing something. And uh, he, he reflects on, you know, this idea that always being busy and always having something to do is one of the ailments of our age. Like here, Craig Parton says, you know, perhaps that's why we don't have some of the monumental works of some of the great philosophers of past or sculptures, right? What sculptures do we see now coming out versus the David, right? And the sculptures that we have in museums, even if they're missing the nose, we still consider them great pieces of art. What's the statue that came out recently of, was it MLK? Yeah. And, and, Progressivism, it tells you, you have to like this. You must accept this. You must like this. You know, and, and you, you can't help, you can't ignore the fact that a lot of the wonderful works of art and masterpieces were done by Christians at a time that Christianity was blossoming because the artists aren't demanding you like their things. It's not a demand. It's done out of service and as a gift that they use their God-given talents for the benefit of others. And that's truly what is beautiful. That these artists, they didn't demand, but they let their work speak for themselves, speak for itself. That, I think, is, you know, one of the profound things and differences, you know, that right now we're told we have to say something is beautiful when it's not. We have to live by, and we have, yeah, there's a book that's titled this, but 
We're being forced to live by lies, to actually speak a lie. That's what the devil wants us to do, is to speak untruths, to say lies. This is beautiful, and you will say that. You will accept it. Yeah, Chris. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that a lot of this comes from kind of a movement now to just basically abolish history. Yeah. We don't teach history anymore. We don't teach philosophy. We don't teach studying the great works from the past because we want to wipe them out. So it's taught as though they don't exist or they're like, like he's saying in here, they're just basically completely primitive, which is really ridiculous when you go back and look and read some things and study. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's sort of a, it's a, it's a purposeful um, kind of trajectory so that you can make this argument. Mm -hmm. People from, you know, 50 years ago or whatever just didn't know anything and they were completely, you know, yeah. it's when you go back and look at the artwork and read some of the things, just try to sit down and read some Socrates, go ahead and try to figure, figure it out. The average student nowadays wouldn't have any idea what he was talking about. Yeah. So I think it's really a purposeful thing to make this, this argument. Yeah. We're, it's, it's so arrogant. There you Somehow go. We're yeah. superior and you know, wonderful with all of our technology. And um, I think it was at the thing at Faith, I went to that one thing that one night with what, Dr. Neath or whatever, he was saying that that's a big difference. And not even in this postmodern time, but moving past the postmodern time, the focus now is not even on science, it's on technology. Right, technology right. Cre creates and makes everything, and we're so superior and so wonderful. So we don't even care about science anymore, now we just care about the latest technology. And yeah. it's, really, um, it's really too bad. It's pride. Yep, pride and, and uh, what, what was the word you used? Um, arrogance. It's really yeah, arrogant. Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, absolutely. And not only are, you know, now the argument is not necessarily that they're dumb or uninformed, but now the argument is they're sexist, right? They're racist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the base of narcissism. Very good. Okay, uh, page 12. The argument is historically unsupportable. If first century New Testament man was primitive, then we should reasonably expect first century Christianity's cultural resorts to be primitive. This is hardly the case. From Neanderthals come stone tools and clubs at best. The superstitions of indigenous peoples led, for example, to failure to develop a sustainable water supply. Infant mortality rates were staggering. From primitive societies necessarily come primitive ideas. Instead, however, the supposedly primitive first century biblical writers set the stage for the rise of modern medicine, the modern university, modern science, and the flourishing of the arts. Christianity's God was incarnate in real history, a savior who administered healing to the sick and infirmed. This gave birth to modern medicine and the establishment of the first hospitals, including care for the mentally ill. The church-run covenant, I'm sorry, the church-run convent gave rise to the profession of nursing, which was greatly reformed and advanced by the efforts of Florence Nightingale, a devout Christian. The Red Cross has its origins in Christianity. Christians are also credited for the beginning of orphanages and homes for the elderly. The Ecumenical Council of the Christian Church at Nicaea in 325 directed the bishops to establish a hospice in every city that had a cathedral. Christianity introduced the idea of the value of all human beings and the need to care for the least of these. Something funny that this reminded me of just down in Guatemala, they don't have like little uh, hospitals or Walgreens sort of things. Uh, they have, it's called the Green Cross. And I laughed because you're all over the city and you see, you know, the Green Cross, medicines, po potions, you know, like mixtures, uh, like a Walgreens or whatever. 
And I laughed because I told one of the people who lived down there, one of, our, one of our guides or translators, I said, in the United States, do you know what the green cross is? Does anybody know? No. Nobody wants to admit they know what it is because it'll be guilt. Who said it? Somebody mumbled it. My wife did. Thanks be to God. I married a wonderful woman. The Green Cross, they're marijuana dispensaries. And I told, I laughed because I was talking with one of the translators. I said, man, you don't understand how funny this is because in the United States, this is where everybody goes to buy pot. <laughs> and they, I don't know why they call it the Green Cross in Guatemala. I, I didn't get that far. I just laughed and made a joke and moved on. Um, but the Red Cross, of course, here we see its, its basis and, and the building upon it, uh, care for the least of these. This is what Christianity was known for, even in Roman times, right? If you had a child, you could just dispose of the child at will. If you had a girl and you wanted a boy, there was a place, there was a hill outside of town that was known as the place where you would leave, leave the, the child to die, the unwanteds. And Christianity became known because they went out and sought these children. They went out and took care of the unwanted. And it baffled the, the pagans. They said, man, how is it that they value life such this way? Christianity has valued the life of the mind from its inception and put a unique emphasis on universal education. The so-called humanist renaissance was led almost solely by solidly believing and educated Christians. Dante, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Erasmus, Thomas More, John Collette. It was truly a Christian movement centered in the rediscovery of classical antiquity and the in-depth study of the original languages of the Bible. Monasteries developed a liberal arts approach to education, and the reformers pushed for universal education so the laity might read the Bible for themselves. Christians started the first kindergartens, developed schools for the deaf using sign language. Christian Louis Braille developed the system of raised dots so the blind could read. There's also a long and distinguished history of serious Christian involvement in the scientific enterprise. Alfred North Whitehead, the renowned philosopher of science, goes so far as to say that the origin of science required Christianity's insistence on the rationality of God. Christianity distinguished the creator from the creation while still retaining the view that creation was good, even if not one with God. This removed the pagan and Greek tendency to deify nature. The number of Christians involved in serious scientific pursuits is legion. It includes Francis Bacon, the practical creator of scientific induction, Nicholas Copernicus, who proposed the heliocentric theory, Tycho Brahe, who discovered a new comet and built an observatory. Johannes Kepler, who discovered the elliptical movement of the planets, developed and confirmed three astronomical laws, was the first scientist to define weight as the mutual attraction between two bodies and was instrumental in establishing the heliocentric theory. Galileo, the first to use the telescope and who has observed, among other things, lunar mountains. Blaise Pascal, who discovered the barometric pressures vary with different altitudes. Isaac Newton, who discovered the law of gravity and invented calculus, uh, independently of Leibniz, who was also a Christian believer. Robert Boyle, who discovered Boyle's law, namely that the volume of gas varies inversely with its pressure. Michael Faraday, who discovered electromagnetic induction. Louis Pasteur, who founded microbiology, and Gregor Mendel, who laid the foundation for moral genetic, modern genetics. The so-called primitive ideas of first century Christians 
also provided the foundation for the arts and music to flourish. Biblical theology gives strong encouragement to develop the creative artistic gifts of the individual, both to God, both to the glory of God and to the edification of his brother. The Western tradition in art and music is an endless list of artists, musicians, works, and genres. Example, Bach, Mendelssohn, Brahms, Dürer, Rembrandt, Renault, and the cathedrals of Europe. Cantata, cantatas, plain song, and polyphonic and classical music. This list is unexplainable in the absence of the primitive ideas of the New Testament writers. Ideas indeed have consequences. The world has yet to know an atheist leper colony or an agnostic orphanage. Atheism and scientific materialism provide no intellectual foundation for combating human misery. What is, is. Eastern religions are characterized by the doctrine of karma and belief in withdrawing from desire and the temptations of this world. Contrary to this are the first century New Testament writers. Their ideas have been in the forefront of the development of all means to attack and relieve human suffering. They established the foundations of universal education and scientific advancement and furthered the flourishing of the arts. Will the real primitive please stand up? It's sometimes thought that we live in the apex of civilization. The facts suggest this is not the case. Even in the face of such giant works of art as Britney Spears, baby one more time. That was my part. Though we live in the most advanced of times in many ways, sadly the respect for human basic rights throughout the world is objectively deplorable. Just one illustration of this fact. There are more people subject today to slavery and trafficking than any time in the history of the world. We would therefore do well to listen to the primitive New Testament. It says the world does not need more good advice. It needs good news. The good news is that God is there and is not silent, and that he promises a new life to those who repentantly come to him. That corrective of a new heart is grounded in the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. It is verified by the many infallible proofs, Acts 1-3, of his factual resurrection from the dead. It is a solution that we all, as primitives under the law, Romans 3-9, would do well to consider. Questions, thoughts, or uh, feedback? Well, if the first century was primitive, well, then they reversed from... Like you said, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, the, the pyramids, like the construction of those brought up today was so precise to the millimeters yeah. that people today can't imagine how they could do it mm -hmm. without modern technology. Mm -hmm. So the first century people reverted back to being dumb. I mean, right, right. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Such a foolish argument, arguing for the foolishness of primitives, is actually in itself very foolish and primitive. Yeah, B. I smiled a little this on the first page where it said, uh, they treated diseases with toxic remedies. So having gone through chemotherapy twice in my lifetime, if that's not a toxic remedy, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Yeah, or, you know, toxic remedies now, you know, medicine is good, 
But how many pills do people have to take because they're taking other pills? Here's a pill for, okay, this, okay. Here are 10 other prescriptions so you can take this one pill. Have you read anything of Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. and how bad he was? Yep. And when he stopped taking the medicine and went on? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yep. It's pretty, pretty interesting. How everything went away. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of a lot of new, not, a lot of new reflection on old means of of treatment, and uh, God God gives us a lot of wonderful gifts in nature, and uh, and also wisdom and and pharmacology and some of these things. But uh, yeah, yeah, toxic, yeah, yeah, that's it's it's everywhere. Thank you. Yet B. I wondered why you, you just beamed and glowed every Sunday. Whenever I stand next to B, my cell phone starts charging. <laughs> Any other thoughts? One quick thing. I think the I think it's particularly appropriate with respect to art. I mean, my gosh, yeah, just go to a museum or look at a book or take a look at some of the works of art from past centuries. We don't produce anything like that anymore. I just heard somebody talking about that. There are no modern works of art that are anything comparable to various periods of art. Um, it's it's as though it's just disappeared. Yeah. It's really, um, to, to look back at that and say that was antiquated is, is just ignorant because you just look at some of the things and the, the, the methods that were used and the perspective that was gained and whatever, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's funny Chris says that because when we went to New York and we went to the Museum of Modern, Modern Art, uh, the one that struck me, which was brilliant, whoever came up with it, they put a light in a corner mm -hmm. and said, light in a corner. <laughs> and that was, that was the piece of art. Yeah. And I'm thinking a kindergartner could do better yes. than that. Yeah. And it was in, you know, as like a great piece of work. And it's like, that took two seconds to mm -hmm. think of. Or, uh, or also to, I, th I think there was a report, I, I don't know if anybody else heard this, but there were, it was in a museum of art or something somewhere, and people were, you know, oogling and gogging over this piece of art. And turns out the piece of art was upside down, you know, and uh, it wasn't even presented correctly as the artist. But anyway, yeah, um, when you don't have objective beauty, you know, you begin to you begin to celebrate the depravity of man. Um, I was going to say something. Thank you. Oh, yes. Do we have, what did he call it, snobbery? Do we have, what did he call it, advanced snobbery? Or, or um, what was the term he used? Modern snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Does that plague the church? That's one. Yep. Thinking they're they're dumb. Yeah. Or thinking that just the newer stuff taps better into human experience. 
Yeah, you know, and two, it's kind of related to art. You know, you, a lot of times if you just look at a piece of, uh, you know, classical art, you can say, oh, that's neat. But if you study it, if you are taught, then so many things jump out in its beauty. And that, that really is like God's word, you know, to a lot of times in the scriptures, it's, there's this connection between digesting the word of God, right? That you chew on the word of God and that you, when you read God's word, that you take time with it, that not, you know, and that, you know, that's what frustrates me too, you know. I wish I could just sit down with the, the scriptures that are for the next Sunday. I could just sit down and in five minutes be done. Write a sermon, bada bing, bada boom. But no, God's word, it requires you. And, you know, it's part of my job. It requires you to slow down, to chew on the word of God, to digest it. And, and that's what we need to do as Christians, you know. And, and also in the church, to not let chronological snobbery take us away from some of the beauties of God's word and what God's people have, have done before us and then building on that foundation. Well, not only that, it takes away from telling people they're sinful because we don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah, yeah. Because modern, modern man can't handle it. Yeah. we got to yeah. feel good about everything. Yeah, so chronological snobbery, the arts, and also in history, but we also need to be leery of chronological snobbery in the church, mm -hmm. um, and, and yet also appreciating and giving thanks to God for the passing on of arts and, and goodness and, and new composition and things like that uh, today. Uh, absolutely. But that just dawned on me as we're, just now as we're reading this. Uh, chronological snobbery in its varied ways. Yes? I'm going to harass you. Please, please do. As we're reading all of these different things and all of the names of the people who have discovered these things and all of these things, these are all males. <laughs> we would have been farther along probably if somebody would have listened to or accepted or encouraged the female mind as well as the male mind. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> the point is that, that much has not been used or has the snobbery of, and I'm not speaking, uh, uh, I'm talking about in general, what the female has had to overcome in order to be listened to or heard in their discoveries. Yeah, you know, and that's an interesting... Yeah, and we have to be careful of that, too, because that also is an accusation against the Bible, right? That uh, we might not call it, well, it's chronological snobbery in a, chauvin, in a female chauvinistic way of saying Jesus didn't have any women disciples, women pastors. So now, right, now we have evolved. Now we listen to women, so they should be, be pastors, right? So... Sure, yeah, perhaps, maybe. You know, that's a, that's a, a question that we, we can't answer, right? But indeed, certainly, you know, there are many contributions in, that, in, that, in the past, too, that women contributed. Absolutely they did. But we don't celebrate, you know, what, is, what does the Bible celebrate in regards to 
what is a beneficial and treasured life according to male and female? Right? What does the Bible speak and define as a, a woman of God? Right? And what does the Bible speak and define as a man of God? I, I think that in, you know, in that accusation, not necessarily you, but what I'm saying is there is a danger side to that that now modern-day accusations against the Bible says you have, you have oppressed women, they have just as much to offer. Maybe, okay, fine, but offer in regards to what, you know, and, and what life? One of the things that when I hear the term, the, the church does not teach this, uh, meaning uh, oppression or any of that kind of thing. True, the Bible does not... The Bible does not teach any of that. And it's not so much what the church says, but it's what they've left unsaid. Well, that's an accusation just the same way of another one. Somehow that the Holy Spirit isn't capable of articulating the truths of the faith. No, it's not, not, it's not the Holy Spirit's problem. It's our... Uh, pride and arrogance that does not let, allow that the, what the Word is saying and how it truly values uh, both genders and all the, the beautiful and the ugly that we would consider it ugly. Yeah, but I, I don't necessarily think the fact that women aren't listed is, is, is talking down the other, the other sex. I, I, I don't think so. Pastor, though, Linda, that's, I don't think that's true because the Bible is revolutionary. Look at the New Testament and the, the role that women played in first century, uh, in the first century era. They were given a, a, a prominence that doesn't exist in any other ancient literature or any other stories. Women were the first ones who discovered that Jesus had rose from the dead. Women surrounded Jesus and he gave them and, places of honor. Yes, and, they're, and they're spoken of as... Uh, being uh, prophesying your your daughters and your uh, you know will prophesy and do different things of that nature. I mean the Bible says all these things. But you know the the interesting thing, uh, it was probably after I was at college and one of my professors who had a divinity degree, uh, one of the things he said was that Jesus was the most uh, was the liberator of women. And and in and, and what you just said about, or, or you, you just said about, you know, that uh, the women were the first to uh, discover his his body gone and all of, and all of these things that, and, and I and I know that, and, but I hadn't really thought that much about it before, hadn't really been. So this is what I'm saying to you about what the church isn't teaching, that I I had not really been. Uh, taught that in my Lutheran, uh, yes, it was always, you know, one of the Bible stories or it was emphasized or it was talked about, but as far as what it, what it actually means for you as a female in the whole picture of everything, because, because we do hear or we do always see the male's, the, the male perspective most generally, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to have to, yeah, you're going to have to chew on it and think about it, you know, in the sense that, you know, God also, you know, 
produces a lot of these scientific discoveries and such that the Christian says, well, I don't care if it's a man or a woman. You know, looking back, you know, modernism has taught us to, you know, even put our gender above our identity as a Christian, you know, and to say, oh, they're, you know, you know, kind of, oh, you know, since there weren't, since Jesus didn't have women pastors, you know, that's a deficiency, you know, no, that's, that's a, a good thing. Um, you know, and talking about all these lists and things like that, I mean, we have Marie Curie, right? Um, and uh, scientists who were women who did, did things. But, I mean, all these scientists had moms. <laughs> they had moms who loved them, maybe, uh, and taught them. So to downplay the role of women and the role that they played in these scientists, I think is falling into a modern trap of looking down on motherhood and saying, no, the only celebration we can get is if, men, if, if, if women have the same recognition that men do. Well, yeah, sure, I'd agree with that. If you w- would give women the recognition that the Bible says is, is good and God-pleasing. Because also, too, with a lot of these men and their discoveries and being scientists, what, is their, what does their family life look like? That would be my question. Did they sacrifice their family life for their, and their kids for this? I mean, w- there's a saying that says, the, the sons of great men are rarely good. Right? Because great men make a name for themselves because they've sacrificed their role as a father and a husband. So, uh, yeah, Kimberly first. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's a good and I think I touched on that a little bit, right? Even and hearing that they yeah. were, um, their religious faith, you know, to say they didn't they didn't do that. Yeah. And and that's what, you know, we have to keep in mind, you know, what what is and I preach on that today. What is the glory that we should be pursuing? You know, what is the glory we should have that oh, I, you know, um, there aren't enough Germans in this list cuz I'm German. You know, I mean, modernism is looking really to divide us. And really, what does the gospel say? There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor, nor free. So the Christian can sit back and say, okay, I may not approve of how God unfolded history, but I can know that God is good. And I know that he takes care of his people because there's that old, that old hymn that says, uh, how does it go? You may not be able to sound the trumpet. You may not be able to preach like Paul. You may not be able to this. You may not be able to that. But God has given you a task and to rejoice in that. You may not be receiving the praise of men. Your name may not be written in books, but that's okay. Because the true glory we receive, which we rejoice in, is is the forgiveness from Christ and eternal life.